we read the scriptures together and we stand out of reverence for God's word. So if you'll remain standing, if you're joining us at home online, I'd invite you to stand where you are and hear the word of the Lord. This is from the book of James in the New Testament. We'll be looking at this today. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and be well fed, and does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. And then Paul, because he read Norman Vincent Peale's uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People, says, You foolish person! Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? And then skipping down to verse 25. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, and I invite you to read these next, this next phrase out loud with me. Would you say it? So faith without deeds is dead. One more time. So faith without deeds is dead. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you so much for standing out of reverence for God's word. Hey, before we jump into the message today, we did a work day yesterday. Some of you uh, organized and, and planned and did an amazing job at one of our uh, churches in McPherson. We're part of the Church of the Nazarene, and so we drove up to McPherson yesterday, a bunch of folks, and just did a bunch of work. When the pastor that's currently there, his name's Jeff, started as the pastor, I, I've heard two different stories, but I'm going to give you the, the bigger number. They had two people. And they've been making a very concerted effort to reach out into their community and uh, just don't have the resources that would be at the disposal of a church that's been around for a while and has folks. And so a bunch of you, you drove up there and you gave time, energy, and money and resources. And um, I don't think anybody lost any fingers that I know of. Uh, I was there in the morning and I didn't stay the whole day. So if you lost a finger, I'm really sorry. We'll pray for you. Uh, <laughs> but you did. You worked. You did some pictures of, uh, of you doing all this. And we had, if those of you remember uh, the show Tool Time, we had a couple of our very own Wilsons who are going to show up in a picture here right there, right? All throwback, throwback right there. So thank you for doing that. You're so generous. Uh, you care so much. You make so many sacrifices. Thank you for doing that yesterday. That was so powerful. Well, today we're uh, in our series called Faith That Works, and today uh, the title of the message is Learning from Prostitutes. Learning from Prostitutes. Now, I've got a question for you as we jump into this, uh, and here's, here's my question. Uh, who is it that you will allow yourself to learn from? Who will you allow yourself to learn from? Now, I think that's a function of how humble you are, because if you're humble, you're willing to learn from anyone, and if you're proud, you learn from only the people that you select, and uh, if you're like me at times, you, you have written people off. They don't see it the way I do. They don't know what I know. Uh, they don't understand what I understand. They don't come from my perspective. And at that point, I've been, maybe you've been, uh, not humble enough to learn from them. That's a, that's a function of pride. And so James is going to humble us all the way down and give us a lesson from a source 
that we don't expect from a prostitute. And so I, I hope this morning that you will learn the lesson that the Holy Spirit is teaching us through James chapter 2. Would you pause with me? We're going to pray, and then we'll jump into this message together today. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid, would you please cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit so that we could fully and completely love you. So now may the words of uh, my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, and all God's people said, amen. Well, we're in this series, and we're calling it Faith That Works, and uh, just to frame the context of the series for you a little bit, James is asking us to take Jesus serious so that we don't live without purpose. Now, I, I, I want you to not confuse two things. I don't want you to confuse movement, even movement in a forward direction with purpose, because you can have the winds of other people's purpose pushing you forward, and you don't own the purpose at all. And you might think, I'm making progress. I'm really doing something here. It could be the winds of your boss, or the winds of your teacher, or parents, or grandparents, or someone that you would admire. And it's not, you haven't owned the purpose for yourself. It's just that you're letting the winds of other people's purpose push you. Or maybe you're letting the winds of yesterday's purpose push you. I know some marriages get in trouble because they had purpose. They remembered what they were about and why they loved each other and why they got married. And then they just forget. And and they, they had some wind that pushed them from the past. And some families get in those situations and some churches get in those situations. And James wants us to come and own the purpose for ourselves. And, and so he gives us this, this book in, James, in his letter to some of the Christian, early Christians in James and um, wants us to have a faith that works. Now, the opposite of a faith that works would be what? A faith that doesn't work, right? And if you were here last week, uh, what, what is that kind of faith like? Well, James says that it's you hear all of the words of God and you do not do them. In other words, you've got a lot of insights very little or no application, and the result is that there is no real change in your life. In other words, you don't experience freedom. We talked about it a bit at the close of the message last week. If you choose to hear the words of Jesus about forgiveness and do nothing with them, the fruit that comes into your life is bitterness. If you hear the words of Jesus about repenting and, and having a mindset that can admit that you were wrong and you didn't have it right and you need to see it differently, if you, you choose to say, I just hear that word and use that word and tell other people they need to do that thing, but you don't do it yourself, then you stay stuck in your patterns and in your sins. You don't experience the freedom that God wants for your life because Jesus' goal for your life, I'm going to tell you right now, is that you would live free, famous passage that we'll put on the screen for you uh, from the book of John. Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, listen, if you hold to my teaching, in other words, you you stay with it and do it, then you're my disciples. Then, famous phrase, then you will know the truth and the truth will do what? Set you free. So you have to cooperate with God for your freedom. Now, I, I think one of the number one reasons that Christians often don't experience all of the freedom that God wants them to have in their life is that they don't actually do what Jesus says. I heard one person say it this way a number of years ago. It's always stayed with me. He said, you know, in my experience, uh, many people, many good 
people, Christian people who, who love Jesus and, and want to do what he wants. But they make, this, they make this mistake. They think that time equals growth. Just the passage of time somehow does something to you so that you become a, a deeper, richer, fuller, bigger person. And they think that just by fact of getting older, that means that you're automatically better. And he said, that's not actually the case. So what often happens for people is they live the same year over and over and over and make no changes and nothing is different and no transformation or freedom comes into their life. And they get to a decade and they go, oh man, it's a decade. I've, I've lived a whole decade. And all they've done is live the same year 10 times. And so instead of having a decade of growing in their understanding of how to access God's peace and live with peace in their heart, toward themselves and other people. They just live the same year 10 times. And instead of growing in their ability to handle conflict and do what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount and be a peacemaker, instead of learning how to do that and work through their own issues and and pains around that, instead of doing that, they just live the same year 10 times. And so instead of having a decade of growth in the what Paul calls in Galatians the fruits of God's spirit in your life, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control, instead of having a decade where they're growing into those things, they just live the same year 10 times and they're not free. James says you can be free. James says you can be free. So James, uh, here in his book, in, in James, and then here specifically in chapter 2, he's, he's talking to us about having a practical kind of faith, and he's trying to help us understand what it looks like when we are exercising our faith. And here in chapter 2, what he underscores, he says, listen, if you want to know what your faith looks like when you're exercising it, what it's going to look like, it's going to result in, in the way you treat other people. In other words... You can't say that you have faith and treat people bad. Now, I've given you this illustration, and I've said this to you several times. I'm going to say it to you now, and I'm going to say it to you again. Uh, you know, we're going to be done here in a little bit, and, and a lot of you, like us, you're going to go, well, where do we want to go eat today? And you're going to go out to eat, and you're going to sit down. And, uh, and I, I, when I go on Sundays, I just kind of look around the room, and I go, hmm, who else went to church today? And, you know, I can kind of tell. You either dress kind of like me, or you might be wearing a suit and tie, or you might be wearing the T-shirt from the ministry that you worked in that morning. You know, I can just kind of spot. I'm like, they went to church, and they went to church, and they, and not them, and not the, You know, and I kind of, and, and I've talked to servers about Sundays when all the Christians come out of church services and go to the restaurants, and they all say, almost with one voice, it's the worst day of my week. <laughs> and they say, you know, I, I, people are grumpy and they, they're demanding. And then when I don't do a good job because I'm overwhelmed because it's super busy, then they leave a terrible tip. And I'm like, I hate Sundays. You can't have faith and then treat people bad. That's what James is trying to say. So he gives us a couple of examples here in verse 1, this is his first example. He says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show, what is the word there? Favoritism. Now, here's how you and I read this. You know, we read this and we go, oh, that's so good. I don't do that. <laughs> I, I mean, I know some people who do, but I don't. You know, give me something, you know, deep here, James. Give me what's next. And, and James wants us to know that we always think, that we don't do the thing. And so we name somebody else and we say they need to hear the, th- the thing. In fact, oh, I know who needs to hear this. 
Sheila needs to hear this. Hey, text Sheila right now and tell her to log on to the live stream and she can watch this because she really needs to hear this. And James is like, I'm not talking to Sheila. I'm talking to you. I'm not talking to Karen. I'm talking to you, right? The first service did not get that joke at all. I, that was amazing. Thank you for laughing. That was here's, here's what favoritism is. When I treat someone preferable to me in a preferential way. Now, you say, well, okay, if that's the definition of favoritism, Scott, I mean, I, it's kind of impossible to avoid because, frankly, that's just how the world works, Scott. Come on. And, and if I'm honest, there are plenty of people that I prefer and that are preferable to me. If you're the kind of person who is a nerdy theological type and you walk up to me and you tell me uh, that you read Herman Bavink or that you read, uh, you read Irenaeus or Clement of Alexandria or Aquinas um, or you read John Chrysostom or Gregory of Nazianzus, see, you don't even know who I'm talking about, right? You're like, who is it? Only nerdy theological types know who I'm talking about right now. And if you do, you're my, you're kinda, you're my, you're my people, right? I, we have people like that. I, I, I prefer people like that. I prefer people who like food as much as I do. I'm, I'm a foodie, and um, I love the opportunity to, to try new foods on our, our vacation. Uh, we traveled uh, to the, the East Coast, and then we drove down the Southeast right along the Gulf. And, um, and we went through, on purpose, New Orleans. Now, when I say we, I really mean me, because I'm willing to drive a long way for something that I want to eat. I really am. And so we drove to New Orleans, and we went to this place while we were in New Orleans. Uh, just spent the night there, and then got up in the morning and went to this place called Cafe Du Monde. I'm pretty sure there's already an outpost of it in heaven. Uh, but we went to Cafe Du Monde, and what Cafe Du Monde is favorite, famous for is, is the beignet. I don't know if you know what a beignet is. It's like a, a, a Cajun donut. That's the best way I know to describe it. And we're sitting there, we're eating it. And my 11-year-old daughter looks over at me and she said, Dad, this is the best thing I've ever eaten in my life. I'm moving to New Orleans. <laughs> and I said, okay, all right. I said, well, well, at least can you tell me when we're coming back? Because this is so good, you know. And she went around telling people this story. And the people that, that know me well uh, that she told this story to, they said to her, oh, you are your father's daughter, aren't you? Because <laughs> right? I love people that love the things that I love. And again, we hear James say this about favoritism. We're like, well, James, come on, that's a little harsh, right? I mean, that's how the world works. I like some people and they like me. I mean, that's kind of the grain of the universe. Favoritism is based on preferences and feelings and desires. Now, if you've been around the New Testament for a while, and you're familiar with some of the language about how we fall short, you may, you, that, that may trigger something for you. You may be thinking of a category that the Apostle Paul used repeatedly to talk about our struggle with sin. And the word that he uses is, he, he calls it the flesh. I'll give you an example. This is in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. This is the Apostle Paul wrote many of the letters in the New Testament. He said, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be, there's the word, free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Now, for those of you who've been around for a while, 
uh, you may have had the NIV translation, the New International Version translation, and you may have read in the NIV translation, if you had that older version of it, you would read that phrase, indulge the flesh, and the translation would say instead, indulge the sinful nature. The translators were trying to convey the concept that Paul is trying to convey when he talks about the flesh, the, 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 the part of me that says, you know, I want satisfaction for my preferences and my feelings and my desires right now. In fact, that's my working definition of what the flesh is. It's that I need to be satisfied um, from what I'm feeling right now in this present moment. I gotta, I've got to have that satisfied. Now, go back, those of you who've read this before, and read Paul where he talks about the flesh and see if that doesn't make sense. Because usually when we think about the flesh, we think, oh, Paul's talking about sexual desire. No, he's talking about I have to be satisfied right now, and I can't count on God to satisfy me, so I'm going to go find satisfaction for what I'm feeling right now. And frankly, that is how the world works. We're all trying to get satisfaction for what we feel right now. And James says, look, this may be how the world works, but it's not how Jesus works. You and I that believe in Jesus must not show favoritism. James roots our behavior in who Jesus is not how we feel. And, and Jesus, here, here's what James is trying to say. Jesus came for the whole world, not my tribe. I was uh, a Nazarene in utero. You know, I, 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 will, I was born a Nazarene. I will die a Nazarene. I'm, I'm very proud of that. I'm, I'm, but Jesus doesn't secretly prefer Nazarenes. I know some of us that have been around this a while, we think that's the case. Like, I mean, you're a Baptist and that's fine, but you really, you're not a Nazarene, right? Jesus doesn't secretly prefer Nazarenes. Jesus doesn't secretly prefer conservatives. Jesus doesn't secretly prefer pastors. James is saying, no, no, that, that's, not how, that's not how Jesus works. We, we cannot show, we're not to show favoritism. We're not to work that way. And then he gives us a case study and it's in James chapter 2. We'll put it on the screen. And the case study is this. He says, listen, so someone walks into your gathering while you're worshiping, and, and this person is dressed nice, and you can tell they've got money by how they dress and how they carry themselves. And, and, and they walk into your meeting, and at the same time, this poor man who smells, he's homeless, he's dirty, they walk in at the same time. And if you turn to the man that has the resources and you say to him, well, I recognize not only that you have resources and that you're connected and that you can add value to what we're doing. Okay, well, here, come over here. We got a spot just for you. Let me introduce you to some people and go meet them. He says, if you do that and at the same time you say or think in your heart about this other person, like, why do people like that have to come in here? Hey, just stand at the back or something. Because you recognize almost immediately that while the one man has resource and is, resources and is connected and has their act together, you recognize almost instantly that this other person is going to require resources. They're not connected. And if you get involved in their, their mess, then it is going to take something from you. And here's James' assessment. He says, if that is the train of thought that goes through your head, this is what he says. Have you not discriminated, verse 4, among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, again, James, come on. Evil? 
I'm just looking out for what's best for our church. I mean, evil, that's, that's a bad person who does bad things. And I'm a good person and I do, I do good things. But James says, no, no, you don't, I don't think you understand. An evil person is someone who puts one person above another and doesn't understand fully how Jesus act on the cross once for all, broke down all the divisions that we as human beings create amongst ourselves. And, and if I am treating one person better than another, then I become a judge with evil thoughts. Now, I wrestled with this, and I had to admit I've been guilty of that. Because here's what, here's what James is saying. Who, who is the judge? Not me. And when I treat people according to the categories of the world, where there are people that are higher and people that are lower, I am assuming God's position. So it's almost like, okay, we'll stand back and watch out for the lightning strike. You know? and, and James says when we do that, he uses very pointed language. Verse 6, he says, you have dishonored the poor. In other words, you've stolen from them their inherent dignity as a person made in the image of God that God honors their dignity and sees their value and sees their worth. And instead, you've put yourself in God's place and you have dissed the honor that God gave to them by virtue of being created in his image. In fact, he goes on and he says, listen, if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as a lawbreaker. And then he fleshes that out. James not messing around. And then he gives us a second example um, in verse 14. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? The answer is no. And then he gives us another case study. He says, okay, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes. This is verse 15, and daily food. And if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? James is saying, listen, well wishes are not an expression of faith thoughts and prayers. If that's what you think faith is, it's like I feel warm towards someone's need and I'm kind of moved by the fact that they're struggling. Oh, look at that poor person. He said, that's how you operate. If you think that's the totality of faith, you have a set of ideas and an ideology, not the faith of Jesus. So he says, in the same way, verse 17, faith by itself is not accompanied by action, is dead. James is saying you got to have the deeds, not just own the creeds. I'll give you three, uh, three words we use to talk about this, and, and I'll, James is talking about the third one. Sympathy. James is not saying you need to have sympathy, though that's a good thing. Sympathy is, you know, your dog died, and I feel bad that your dog died. I'm so sorry your dog died. Empathy is, uh, oh, I lost my dog, and that was very sad for me, and, and you lost your dog. I'm sure that's very difficult for you. I, I feel with you that you lost your dog. And James says, like, those things are fine. Those are human emotions, and those are good to have, but you got to take your faith further than that to compassion. Compassion is, I'm going to suffer with you. You lost your dog. Can I come over and sit with you and let you play with my dog? Because that's so hard. When I lost my dog, no one was there for me, and I was so sad about it. I'm so sorry you lost your dog. I'm, I'm moved by your predicament, and I'm not just moved in my emotions. I'm moved to action. 
Now, we've got to pause here for just a second because what James says here for many people is a source of confusion. In fact, Martin Luther, when he read the uh, letter of James, he said he called it an, an epistle or a letter, letter of straw, meaning um, I, he thought, okay, well, I think maybe James is introducing a new gospel here. This is not what we learned from Paul in his writings, and he seems to contradict Paul. So let me tell you what the Apostle Paul said about works and and how we're in with God. This is in Ephesians chapter 2, kind of a famous passage. Uh, This is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. This isn't from you. It's the gift of God. And then he says this, not by works, so that no one can boast. So who is right? So James is saying, listen, if, if you don't have deeds, then you don't have your faith. And Paul's like, well, wait, you're not, it's not your deeds that save you. So who's right? Is Paul right? Is James right? Well, Paul and James are answering different questions. Paul is answering the question, okay, how is it that I am in with God? What do I need to do to be in with God? And Paul's answer is it's only through Jesus and only through what Jesus did on the cross for you and for your sins. God is not some divine scout master waiting until you complete all of the merit badges before you get the moniker. You know, you're, you're complete, you're in. You can think about it like this, like here's the cross, and Paul's talking about before the cross, like all of our sins are rolled onto Jesus on the cross, and his sacrificial death is for us and for our sins, and it's the only way we can be made right with God is through what Jesus has done with it, uh, done for us and, and on the cross, and, and so Paul's saying you're right with God because of the grace of God, but James is talking about on the other side of the cross. When I know that I'm in, James is answering the question, well, how do I know that it actually took? And he says the re- it results in a change in the way you treat people or it didn't really take. The vertical relationship that you enjoy with God, and we're in an age and a time when people have, like, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And they have this, you know, I have this personal thing that I have with God, but it doesn't translate into how I treat the people around me into a horizontal relationship with people. Your deeds are not the basis of your acceptance by God, but your deeds are the way you show love for God. So he goes on in verse 20, he says, so you're a foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? And then he gives two examples. One is Abraham, and Abraham is known as the father of faith. And everybody, you know, that's like an acceptable answer, of course. Abraham, the father of faith. You know, he sacrifices his son Isaac, and he reasoned in his mind, well, if if I do this, then God can raise the dead, so okay, I'll just obey God. I'll just put my faith into practice. And and, and James and Paul both pick up on this and say, "And, and this act was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, his act was the expression of his belief. Now we can all get in gear with Abraham. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, right. But then he gives, in the last verse, last two verses of James chapter 2, this example of Rahab, the prostitute. Now you'd have to go to Joshua chapter 2 to get the circumstances, and I think we are, our reference here on the screen is incorrect. It's Joshua chapter 2 verse 1. Joshua sends some spies, uh, and he says to them, he says, go look over the land, he said, and especially Jericho. Some of you have been to Jericho. You've seen the environment that it's in. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Um, what? Some of you are going to go to Honduras 
here in a few weeks on a mission trip, and it would be like you go to Honduras, and I get a message back, hey, pastor, I just wanted to let you know that the men um, have found a prostitute's house, and they're staying there for their mission trip. Is that okay with you? What? I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty shocking. Now, the text is very careful in how it words things. I don't think anything in, uh, in impropriety was going on there. I, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly certain that that was just a place they knew they could find lodging, and it would be kind of cover, and so I don't think anything was going on, but word got out really quickly. These two foreigners had come into the city walls of Jericho, and so the leader of the city, the king, comes, and he says, hey, bring those men out. And uh, Rahab, it's in uh, Joshua chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, um, but the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. Rahab said, well, yeah, I mean, the men came to me, so they're hiding above her on the roof while she's saying this to the king. Well, yeah, the men came to me, but I did not know where they'd come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. Maybe you'll catch up with them. So what's the, what's the lesson from the prostitute? It's this. Your faith is expressed by your actions to people in need, or it's nothing. You, you can't know all the creeds and have none of the deeds. Now, maybe, maybe you were here a few weeks ago. We, we told the story of, uh, of Ruth. We did a, whole message on, did a whole message on Ruth, and you can go back a few weeks ago and listen to that message. And I told you the story of this woman in need, and she meets this man named Boaz, and you can read it there in Ruth, and she marries Boaz. His kindness to her is, is very wonderful. And she marries him. And, and then I told you about how, you know, out of Ruth uh, came um, the line of, G- all the way to King David, all the way to Jesus. But you may not have, no, you can read this in Matthew chapter 1. There's the genealogy of Jesus. And I'm going to read you just some, of the, some, of the, some of the names there. Uh, his name was Salmon. He was the father of Boaz, who marries Ruth, whose mother was, do you know who it was? Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David, dot, 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 out of whom came Jesus, the Savior of the world. Now, if you know that story, you know the the hospitality, the kindness, the welcome of a stranger that Boaz shows. It was uncharacteristic of the people of his day. Where do you suppose Boaz learned that from? His prostitute mama. Okay, so what do we do with this? Great, thanks for the history lesson, Scott. What do we do with this? Well, James is warning us that we can have all of the words and we can have all of the language and we can know all of the stuff and not actually have the faith that Jesus wants to put in us, not, not have a faith that actually works. And, and one of the reasons is that we have a tendency to treat faith as an accessory. You know, it's like, oh, I got a cool scarf or a great pair of shoes or a great coat or got this super sweet driver. And it's like our life is our project and faith is just something that we add on that makes life work for me. And James says, no, that's not, that's not faith. James is, is trying to help form a people who are like Jesus, who are holy people and compassionate people, people who are for 
people in need. It was a, it was a miraculous day for me. It was a turning point in my life when I realized that, because we're a holiness church. We talk about holiness. You can be holy in this life, that God can sanctify you or make you into a holy person. It's actually possible in this life. You're not stuck. We talk about that a lot. It was, it was a big day for me, though, because uh, what many of us got growing up was that holiness was the things that we are against. We don't do that. We don't go there. We don't talk to them. We don't hang out with that. Like, we, don't do those, we don't do that stuff. We're holy. And there's certainly warrant for all of that in the scriptures. Be careful about the things that you allow to influence you, all of that. It was a turning point for me, though, when I realized that Jesus, who was completely holy, went into very difficult, dirty, disgusting life situations, and instead of being infected by what was around him, pushed his holiness onto the people around him, and he was for people. See, we've been known for a long time what we're against. It's, it's time for us to be known by what we're for, and we're for people, and we're for the needs of people, and we're for people who are hurting, and we're for people who are the least and last and the lost. We're for people in the name of Jesus. Because that's what it means to be holy people, to be compassionate people. You could go to the ministry of Jesus, and, and you could see Jesus. There's this story that's, uh, where Jesus is standing at the, um, the entrance of the synagogue, and pe- you would drop your offering as you went in, and, and people are dropping, you know, coin in. And his disciples said, Jesus, did you see how much that guy put in? Oh, my gosh. Jesus, not impressed. This woman who's a widow who has nothing puts in the smallest possible coin and she drops it in the treasury. And, and Jesus stops, like, hey, did you guys see that? And I'm like, what are you talking about, Jesus? That woman's got nothing. It's like, oh, no, no, no. These other people, they, they put out of what they, they've got plenty. They're just giving out of what they've already got. It's no big deal to them. This woman gave everything that she had. Or you could go to the scene in Jesus' life before he's crucified when a, a prostitute comes and she breaks this oil uh, and puts it on his feet and she's wiping, she's crying, she's weeping because of the change Jesus has made in her life and she's wiping his feet with her hair. And it's this awkward moment and his disciples are like, Jesus, don't you know who that woman is? And he's like, oh, no, 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 no. This woman's preparing me for burial. And when the gospel is proclaimed all over the world, this woman's story will always be told too. And that's who we are. That's who we are as people who are part of the Church of the Nazarene. One of my favorite stories is how the Church of the Nazarene began. There was a gentleman, his name was Phineas F. Brzee, and there's other people as well, but Phineas F. Brzee, and then um, his name was J.P. Whitney. He was, the pre- he was the president of the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. Phineas F. Brzee was a, a Methodist pastor and bishop in the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, and and um, he pastored a very um, wealthy congregation in Los Angeles. And what he'd noticed is that over time, that um, people who had money and people who had wealth and wanted to be respectable came to church. And the people who were on the margins of society, there was no space for them. And it just started to trouble him. And he thought, this is not true to Jesus. Uh, I mean, yes, we want to welcome the person who has a lot, but we also want to welcome the person who has nothing, and it's not an either-or. And it was really, really troubling to him because he, he was uh, taking the message from John Wesley, the Methodist. We got that from John Wesley. And John Wesley, same thing happened in his day. You, uh, it got to be where you could go and you would buy your pew. So if you were poor, you couldn't go to church because you couldn't afford a pew. 
And John Wesley said, that's not true to the heart of Jesus. And so he left mostly preaching in churches. He still did, was part of the Church of England, but he went out into the fields and he would preach on tombstones. And, and he started to wonder if this was working until one day, it's one of my favorite stories. He was preaching uh, from some men who'd come out of the coal mine. If you've seen coal miners, they're just covered with black dust, you know, and this is, so there's men and young boys and even children. And he's thinking, what am I doing? I, I should go back to what, why, is, is this even working? Until uh, he looked and he saw these clear streaks going down the face of these men. He said, yeah, we got to be, we're the church for everybody because we're the church of Jesus. And so Phineas Epperzi picked up on this and and he's like, we got we to return to the message of Jesus. We got to always return to this. I mean, what? So he and J.P. Whitney talked one day and they said, what, what do we call this? And they prayed about it all night long and in the morning, J.P. Whitney said, you know, wasn't Jesus from Nazareth? Wasn't Nazareth, Nazareth this little backwater town where nobodies and nothings lived? Weren't those the people that Jesus came for, the people from his hometown, people like that? You know what? We're the church of the Nazarene from Nazareth. We should be the church of the Nazarene. One of my favorite stories. So that's just going to be us. That's, that's us. We're, we're just going to meet the needs of people, and we're going to love people, and we're going to serve people. And James would tell us in James chapter 2, that's more important than anything else that we're doing in the church. Like you can disagree about this or want that, or, but if we're not doing that, like what, what, what's the point? So I thought it would be really helpful if we would pray. And uh, I grew up with these kinds of benches and churches, and we call them altars. And uh, there'd be times when people would come and they would pray around these benches. And just, it's a, it's a set-aside space where you could do some business with God and you could talk about what's going on in your mind and heart. And I thought it'd be good if we ended by having some time to pray around these benches together. So I want to invite you to stand with me. And as you're looking at your life, and you might recognize that there are some things and some attitudes and some dispositions that you need to change. Some, you're not in line with what Jesus said. I mean, you can come right now if you want. You're not in line with that. You need to repent. You've had favoritism. I've had to repent this week of favoritism. I had to repent of wanting my feelings and preferences. I've had, to re- I've had to repent. And maybe you need to do that. Like, yeah, I need to do that. Maybe you, you just, you, okay, I need again to be reminded that uh, I'm following Jesus, the, the holy, compassionate one. We're, I'm, I'm in, I'm in, I'm all in on that. And I'm recommitting myself to that in front of God, at every, God and everybody. I mean, you, you can do this in your seat if you're not comfortable coming. You can turn around and kneel at your seat. If you're at home, you can turn around and kneel on the couch, bow your head, whatever you need to do to do some business with God. So that we're people that have a faith that works and we put Jesus' words into practice. So I want to invite you to pray with me right now and we're going to, we'll close a little bit differently and let folks pray or you can come forward after we're done praying here if you want to spend some time praying. Jesus, we hear the words of your brother, James, and uh, it's very convicting. 
to hear that we're not to show favoritism. That we're to love every single person the same. And God, there are times and places that we've not done that and we repent. We confess our favoritism. We confess that we've even operated in the church as people with fleshly kinds of desires. We want our feelings met. We want our needs met. And we've let that drive us instead of your mission. And so we want to repent of that. We don't want to be people who are pushed around by our flesh. We want to be people who are in step with your spirit. And so forgive us and we, we repent. God, we, we uh, confess that we need you. We need your Holy Spirit to be people of compassion. We need your spirit to cleanse us in the words of the prophet, to take out our heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. We need that. We need that work done in our hearts. And so, God, would you take out uh, where we've had a heart of stone toward the needs of people. We've had a heart of stone toward the mission of the church that you've given the church. God, take that out. Replace it with a heart of flesh that feels with that empathizes with, but then moves and has compassion for. Just move to action. So we ask you for that by the power of your spirit.